Our scripture readings today come from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24, verses 44 through 53, and we will also be reading in Acts. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had cho chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the last week of Easter. This is Ascension Sunday. This is a, a wonderful uh, day. And there's many things to talk about when we consider the Lord Jesus ascending into the heavens. Those of you who are theological uh, study group students, you may note that this is a topical sermon. You don't need, you, that doesn't matter too much, but we won't just be covering Luke and Acts. Uh, in fact, we're actually going to have 
almost a second reading worth of uh, other scriptures to consider. But I want to look at the implications of the ascension of Jesus Christ as it relates both to what he did in the unfolding plan of redemption, as well as how it relates to us, that is, why he ascended, what he was going to do in heaven, and what he was going to send from heaven, as well as looking on how it orchestrates and and, uh, rather orients all of ministry, all of life done as Christians. We've been talking for the last few weeks about the Uh, gospel commissioning that Jesus does when he sends his disciples on mission. And believe it or not, you have been commissioned if you are following Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple, Jesus calls his disciples to be fishers of men. He does not call his disciples to be admirers. He does not call his disciples into a lifetime of theological study that is never applied. He doesn't call them into a life of faith That is, that they're just to be those who hold some vague sentiments. Rather, he calls his disciples to be fishers of men. And so as we are being discipled by the Lord, we must also be on mission. You cannot be a Christian if your Christian life never arrives at mission. Now, that being said, Jesus tells his disciples to wait until you are clothed with power in Jerusalem. And I believe that That's right. You should not be doing any sort of mission work uh, until you're clothed with power, because if it was good enough for the disciples, then it must be good enough for you. Uh, We're not more equipped than they are. We're probably less equipped. Likewise, Paul, after he's converted, we, we understand from the context of other epistles that he wrote that he spent 14 years working Uh, on his preparation before he began to really uh, thrive in his apostolic calling. That's not very clear from Acts. Uh, The the chapters don't really cover that, but in other epistles that he writes, he mentions there was a period of 14 years of preparation. And so Jesus spends his entire adult life waiting until he's 30, till the time is, is prepared for him to go on mission and to begin to preach. Likewise, the disciples are told to wait. They've had three years of one-on-one instruction with Jesus, uh, three and a half years. And then also Paul himself, the greatest apostle that, we've, that we know about, according to the New Testament uh, documents, spent 14 years. And if you look at the fruit of Paul's ministry, I think it's, it's right to say that that preparation was not wasted. That being said, you must eventually arrive on mission. You must eventually begin to go and to preach the gospel. And so this is not an optional element of being a disciple of of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sends his disciples out as the Father sent him. This is not a religious observance club. And so you have to be going out. And we've looked at through uh, the last two weeks, that the, the going out is done on the basis of all authority being given to Jesus Christ. When Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him, he's making a claim that is to be a bedrock foundation, a, a, a foundation which cannot be destroyed for the Christian to understand how they are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Without understanding that all authority belongs to Jesus Christ, you will have trouble as you are going preaching. You will necessarily have foundational issues, and if you become convinced or impressed 
distracted with uh, the, the darkness that is in our culture, the hopelessness that most Christians have concerning Western Christianity and where we see society going, if you become impressed with the trajectory of evil taking hold in our culture and you miss out that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ, then you will live in reaction to Satan. You will live in reaction to what demonic spirits are attempting to do in, in tormenting people rather than living in reaction to the command that Jesus Christ has given to go into all the world. And so we are to go into all the world to preach the good news, to disciple people in everything that he taught them, and also to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That means to bring them into the life of God, to bring them into a culture of hope, peace, joy, etc., the fruits of the Spirit being manifested on a cultural level. This is the Great Commission. It is a corollary, or it's a uh, the other side of the coin to the dominion mandate which God gave Adam in the garden. He said, you are to be fruitful and multiply. This was a command given to Adam and his wife to be fruitful and multiply. And that doesn't mean just a, you know, this isn't some sort of... Uh, if you were in, in Christianity in the early 2000s, you may have remembered the prayer of Jabez. Multiplying isn't just extending the, your tent pegs. Multiplying is multiplying. When you have two people, when they multiply, they become four people. Multiplying means to increase the number of people in that context. And so to be fruitful and multiply, to, to take use of the created order to subdue it, for the glorification both of man and therefore to the glorification of God. Worship cannot be done without glorification. And so man is called to take the created realm, the world, and to use it for the purpose of glorifying God. And so the Great Commission and the Dominion Mandate are two sides of the same coin of God's mighty call to his redeemed humanity to go out into all the world, to use the physical world, and to make war against the powers of darkness, preaching the good news, and setting people free in the name of Jesus. That is what Christianity is about. And if you're not doing that, you are still beginning to be prepared or you've been put on the sidelines. And you can choose to be put on the sidelines, but I don't think that you will ever find your destiny there. You, you will never find true fulfillment of who you are as God's special uh, creation. You will never find your destiny apart from being a part of this uh, style or this, this understanding of what Christianity means. You cannot just go uh, week in, week out, and just attend church, call yourself a Christian, uh, you know, don't make a ruckus, don't ruffle too many feathers, don't, you know, work your job for as long as you need to until you can retire safely with a pension and then coast into, you know, cribbage and golf on Saturdays. That's not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about a radical sacrifice because you have a bedrock foundation of all authority. And we talked about that uh, in these last two weeks, that Jesus has all, all authority, therefore the devil has no authority. And then we, we asked the question, well, how then are men, how, how are countries, how are nations still in darkness? The reason why they're still in darkness is because there's a difference between authority and power. Power is able to be exercised without authority. We think all the time of criminals, people who break into houses. They're wielding power. They're, they're using violence to achieve some goal of theirs, but they have no authority to do so. It's not morally right that they do so. 
And so the, the way that power stands is when someone with authority does not challenge that power. And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore you are to go. We are therefore the representatives of the authority of Jesus Christ. And we take that authority and exercise it rightly. And of course, Jesus says, here's this authority under which you will operate. And then he says to wait for what? Power. He says to wait for power. So authority and power being wielded by these apostles, then it says Jesus in Acts 1.8, he says, beginning in Jerusalem, then extending to Samaria, Judea, and then the utmost parts of the earth. That's where this is going, the utmost parts of the earth. And the disciples made it to the utmost parts of the earth in a representative sample. Um, Paul says, this gospel which has been preached in all the world, he doesn't mean that people made it to South America. He was talking about a representative sample of the nations where God is demonstrating his intended purpose for history. It's, it's somewhat like a a microcosm. Have you ever seen a map? And then inside the map, there's this little box. And then that box is connected with some lines to a bigger zoom in of that realm or, or of that area. You ever seen that? It's a wonderful thing. If you've only used Google Maps and you've never seen an actual map, you may have never seen one of those, but it's, it's a common thing. Get a road atlas or something. You see this map and then there's this little tinier square. And that's a more important, more dense uh, piece of, of the map. And so they zoom in, they, they make it larger, and, and then you can see that that's what is happening in the first century of the, of the church. The, the, the disciples are giving us a, a tiny picture of where this is going. So the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. You are to, you are to take it there with authority and with power, and that is what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean that you just kind of believe in the gospel and then coast through the rest of life. You're to be on mission. And so the, the mission which Jesus Christ is sending us into the world uh, in has to be attested to. And when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, he then is about to do something which proves all authority in heaven and earth. And that is the ascension into heaven from this earth, a bodily ascension. He did not uh, ethereal. Uh, he didn't. He didn't mist away. He retains his physical body, and he ascends into the heavenlies as a representative of believers, as well as also to take a seat on the throne. So that's the context of the ascension. The ascension, understood outside of context of sending people on mission, is very unimportant. It's it's not as beautiful. It's of course beautiful, but it's it's not as beautiful. Understanding that the ascension is done for a purpose. Uh, restores the value on the ascension of Jesus Christ. Many, many people in the Western church believe Jesus died, he rose again, and and then, you know, they kind of never think about what happened after that. I, I'm here to tell you that the ascension of Jesus Christ should be in your understanding of what he did as important as his birth, ministry, death, resurrection. It should be lumped into the same category. What Jesus Christ does according to the New Testament epistles in, in ascending and taking a seat on the throne is vitally important for the history of Christianity, for where the gospel is going uh, to the end of, of time. So with that in mind, all of that picture being 
uh, painted for the importance of ascension, let's look at four elements. I want to look again at the commissioning that Jesus Christ does. I want to look how Jesus Christ testifies that the reason he's going to heaven, the reason he is ascending, is for the sending of the Spirit. I want to look at, at the ascension as the proof of his authority. He claims all authority, and then he does something to back up and demonstrate that claim. And then finally, we're going to look at how Jesus Christ ascends to reign on the throne. Jesus Christ is wielding uh, the scepter of righteousness to bring about history and uh, to his intended purposes, and that is why he ascends. So the commissioning of the apostles, Christ gives a command to wait. We, we talked about this briefly. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures. Many, many people are comfortable with placing a high emphasis on the, the scriptures, the Bible. They, they emphasize scripture reading. They emphasize scripture study. Of course, we say amen to that, but that's not the only ingredient necessary for a gospel presentation. He says, uh, Jesus Christ opens their mind to understand the scriptures, and then he says to wait. He says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So Jesus is demonstrating that the fulfillment of all the prophets, what they wrote concerning the law going forth from Zion, the law being sent out to the coastlands and the islands, this is taking place through the disciples. Jesus concretely identifies his disciples as being the ones who will carry his law to the ends of the earth. And so in telling them to wait before they depart on mission, he is telling them to observe that his ascension is producing something. There's a proof that he didn't just vanish into outer space or rather into some ethereal mistiness floating with the clouds. Jesus goes up to heaven. He tells them to wait and he tells them to wait until they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John 15, as we're about to look at in a second, says that he will send the Father, or send the promise of the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit, to you. He'll be a helper to you. He'll, he'll be the one who works alongside. And the reason we know that Jesus ascends to the Father, rather than ascending somewhere else or just disappearing, uh, is that he, the Holy Spirit does come. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. The reason I'm going is so that I can send the Spirit. And therefore, when he sends the Spirit, we know that he went to the Father. He didn't just disappear. Christ enters heaven and is anointed king over all. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that when a king is installed, you think of Saul being installed as king by Samuel or David being installed. When they're installed as king, they're anointed with oil. And this oil is poured upon their head, and that anointing oil is an oil which sets them apart for a particular work. When Saul is anointed as king, he is designated as the one to sit on the throne, the one to wield authority over Israel. And so Jesus Christ ascends into the heavens and is anointed as king over all. And that anointing oil, which is the Holy Spirit, of course, in the scriptures over and over again, the two ideas are one, that anointing oil spills down his robes into the earth and anoints the church for mission. And so this is the uh, this is the redemptive his historical perspective of the ascension, and this becomes for us the sign of his authority. 
If you sit down on a throne without being anointed, you are no king, though you are on a throne. And so Jesus Christ is installed as king. He's set in in place as ruler over the universe, and then the Holy Spirit is given. And Jesus concretely ties this together by going to Bethany in order to, to say that he will be anointed once again. At Bethany, the most significant event that took place was when Jesus was anointed for his death. And here he's going to Bethany to to remind his disciples, I will be anointed once again. And from that point, he then uh, is, is kind of unifying or wrapping up this idea of being anointed as king. And so they are to go into all the world because he has all authority and his authority is demonstrated by the Spirit, which we now turn our attention to. Before the crucifixion, Christ teaches that the disciples will receive a helper. And we know that the helper is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who comes alongside and works with. He's an advocate. He's, uh, you can think of him kind of like a, uh, not just a bodyguard, but also a bodyguard who's better at everything that you want to do and, and allows you to do it. And so this helper is much more than a helper. He's, he's much more powerful than you or I. So don't think of him like, you know, a, a helper who's helping you on some little project who's not as good as you. Uh, it's not that kind of helper. He's, he's someone who works alongside. And so this helper is to come and he's to lead the disciples into all the truth. He's to remind them of what Christ taught. And so the Holy Spirit's role in the assisting of the believer is, is magnified in Jesus's teaching in John 15 and 16. And the Spirit's coming, Jesus says, is the proof that he ascends to the Father. He's not just kind of disappearing from them. He's not walking off into the wilderness and then moving to some other country or, or something like that. He's going to heaven. He's not just going to another place on the earth. And Jesus says, when he ascends to the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus Christ is demonstrating that he has the authority to send something from the Father. Now, I don't know about you, I've asked for miracles before, and I've prayed to the Father, and sometimes it doesn't work. Jesus Christ is saying that it's going to work. And when the Holy Spirit comes, as we're about to see next week in Pentecost, it's proof that he has the ability to ask for anything that he wants from the Father. Of course, he always asks according to the Father's will. That's beside the point. The point is that the Holy Spirit's coming is the proof that the ascension was was successful. Just as Jesus Christ is vindicated in his ministry and his claims to be deity by the resurrection, so also the coming of the Spirit is the vindication and proof and demonstration of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so here Jesus Christ is showing what the Holy Spirit will do. And you will also bear witness. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not someone who you have just to cause you know, good feelings or, or give you gifts of the Spirit. We love those as people who have been uh, very associated with the charismatic renewal. We love the good feelings. We love the presence of God, which is mediated by the Spirit. We love the gifts by which he encourages our hearts. But those are to be used in order to do one thing, and that's to bear witness of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so the, the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding, he's reminding them, and he's also causing them to be able to be witnesses. And so John 15 here is harmonizing with Matthew 28, which we looked at 
in the last two weeks, and then also here, Luke 24 and Acts 1, it's all about the Spirit coming so that there can be a witness. Authority will be backed up with power. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And so Christ's ascent to the Father is the vindication of his righteous obedience. It's the seal. It's the final mark that not only was Jesus righteous in his birth and life, growing up rightly, respecting his parents, obeying the law from an early age, and also then ministering in power, in authority, demonstrating who the Father was to the nation of Israel, but also condemning the religious hypocrisy of his day, suffering an unjust trial through which he did not utter even one word of self-defense, and then dying a death in which he bore the wrath of God completely and utterly so that no wrath would remain on those who would trust in Christ. Not only has that taken place, but also he was demonstrated and vindicated as righteous in his resurrection, and now he is being shown as faithfully sending the next generation of those who would preach that the gospel of the kingdom is at hand, that, that is, the kingdom of God is at hand, this gospel which we preach. But also that, that all of that, all of, all of his entire life, every detail has been done rightly. This is the vindication, the demonstration that Jesus Christ did it all. He fulfilled everything which he was supposed to, to do. And if you ever get a hold of that, it'll make you stand in awe. I, I, I routinely am doing these little projects around my house and I'm all the time, like yesterday, it was so humid and I was, I was edging my sidewalks cause you know, sometimes I don't know when to quit. And I was edging my sidewalks literally until I was using a flashlight, which is, that's how you know you're going overboard. Um, but as I got done, I noticed there were, there were imperfections in the concrete that were underneath the grass. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, uh, I'm sweating here, and I'm reminded that the curse that God pronounced on the, he says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat of the fruit of the ground. And so I always remember that when I'm sweating. And, and I look at the, I survey the final project, and I look at what I've just done, and, and, and I look and I notice all the imperfections, and I think to myself, and John said that it was okay. <laughs> you know, God makes, and he then says, it's good. He doesn't find any fault in it. And so when Jesus is ascending into heaven, it's the Father's demonstration that what his son did was good. It's not good enough. It's not okay. It was good. It was right. It was perfect. And so this is what the ascension is. And so Jesus ascends in order to send the Holy Spirit and also to be vindicated as righteous. And in turn, Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he has loved joy He's loved righteousness, and so the Psalms tell us that Jesus Christ is anointed with the oil of gladness because he loved righteousness more than all of his companions. There is no one who compares to Jesus Christ, and so Jesus is anointed with the Spirit, and he receives the Holy Spirit in order that we would receive the Holy Spirit. He does this as a forerunner for the saints. We talk about this idea of a forerunner. Jesus has been uh, encountering all of these things so that we would encounter them. And he receives the Holy Spirit in order to send the Holy Spirit. And here we see it that uh, it, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. So Jesus, right before he ascends, uh, he, he makes this claim of having all authority. And then the ascension proves that this claim is true. 
all authority being given to him, he demonstrates it with a concrete proof. Imagine for a second that you are the disciples. I find it helpful whenever recovering one of these major events in the life of Christ to, to engage my imagination. But think about this. You're, you're a person who has just lived with a man for three and a half years who be, you then betrayed him on the night that he was taken and, and uh, condemned at an unjust trial. And then you saw him or heard of him die. You saw him being buried. He rose from the dead and appeal, appeared to you for 40 days. In a period of 40 days, you've seen him walking around and he is a resurrected person. Now imagine what more amazing proof of authority, a claim that he's, for, you'd be, in, you'd be uh, probably right to just take him at face value that what he's saying at this point is, is right. But if you needed anything more, this is like the cherry on top. If you've ever seen a person start to float into the air and leave skyward, uh, you're probably on drugs. Um, if you're seeing that today, get help. But the disciples, imagine being there. He says, I'm going to the Father to send the Holy Spirit. You, are, you guys are to go back to Jerusalem, go leave Bethany, go back to Jerusalem, and wait there until you receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, I'm sending him to you. Also, when you leave from Jerusalem and begin to preach, remember that I've got all authority. And then he proves it on the spot. He begins to ascend into heaven. That's amazing. Christ ascends into heaven as a demonstration of his total victory overall. His victory overall is proved in his death and resurrection. Of course, we understand that he defeated sin, Satan, death, the grave, etc. But now he leaves the earth as, as kind of a, a statement of not only have I overcome all these enemies, I've also overcome the whole world. And so he ascends into the heaven. That's to be understood not just as a physical reality, but also what it says about um, maybe a metaphysical understanding of the earth. And so his disciples have seen him walk on the water, but now he's ascending through the sky, right? Daniel, the great, the great prophecy of Daniel, the son of man is going to come on what? The clouds. And so here, the, the two angels, which uh, we remind, are reminding us of the two angels at his tomb, they say, the one who ascended this way will likewise come in the same manner. And so Jesus Christ is demonstrating his total authority. And finally, our attention is going to be turned to the last element of this is he ascends to the throne of God to reign. He does not ascend into heaven and then go on vacation eternally. He goes there to do something that, that song which we sang at the beginning of service, before the throne of God above, I have a, a great high priest whose name is love. What that means is that Jesus Christ goes to reign, to sit at the right hand of, of the Father, to intercede for us, and also to rule over the world until the intended end. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last week, and we, we, we saw how Paul describes that Christ will turn the kingdom over to the Father at the end of of time as we know it. And the reason is, is because Jesus will be done with his job. The job that Jesus Christ is doing now is interceding for the believers and wielding the scepter of righteousness, bringing history to his, his intended purposes. And so Christ has fulfilled everything in his birth, ministry, suffering, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. But there's one more thing to be done, that is to be installed as king to be demonstrated as righteous. And so Daniel has these dreams. In the book of Daniel, we're going to look at Daniel 4, uh, or 6, wait, 7. 
Um, Daniel 7, in just a second, Daniel has these dreams in which he sees this one who is a son of man. Now, if we're not going to go into it today, but if you've never read Daniel while you're reading Revelation, you probably don't understand Revelation because Daniel is a codex. It's a system of interpretation which unlocks Revelation. Before this passage in Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision and he sees the Ancient of Days. And this Ancient of Days is demonstrated as one who has hair that's white and a, a, a robe that is... Um, pure. And so in Revelation 1, when we see John the Revelator seeing the Son of Man, the Son of Man is identified in the exact same way. What John is saying is that Daniel's understanding of the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, Jehovah Almighty, that is Jesus Christ. As in Jesus Christ and the Father are one, not not saying that the Father is the Son, but rather that the Son is represented as bearing the exact same literary description of the Ancient of Days. And so that context is where we see Daniel seeing this vision. So Daniel is seeing the Ancient of Days, and he's seeing a throne room reality in which the saints, the angels, are praising the Ancient of Days, the Father. And then he begins to see another event unfold. Now, Daniel is seeing by the Spirit, and and so we're understanding that this is God's intended purpose, that Christ will be ascendant, he will uh, come and sit at the throne, but Daniel is seeing these things beforehand by the Holy Spirit. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with what? The clouds of heaven. So Jesus, in Luke uh, 24 and Acts 1, he ascends on clouds, Daniel here is is saying he's ascending on clouds. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So imagine this. The Ancient of Days is sitting on a throne. There are angels, myriads and myriads of angels. Uh, Ezekiel 1 is folded into the picture. There's lightning, thunder, earthquakes. The Holy Spirit is like a whirlwind. Uh, Ezekiel describes the cherub as having eyes which cover themselves because the glory of God is too unbearable. Their eyes would be consumed with fire at the glory of this ancient of days. And this son of man comes and stands before the ancient of days. The ancient of days is one who cherub, without any any taint of sin, cannot even stand in front of. And yet here comes this human into the, thr- into the throne room, and he stands before the ancient of days. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What is the definition of the word all? It's very simple. It means all. All is the set of all intended in the set. If you want to get a little mathy here, I'm sorry, we're going to uh, math set, set theory school, but all is all. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is a king installed eternally. This is not a king who's installed and deposed. This is not a a head of state that is installed, voted in, and then years later deposed. This is not a king who is installed, surrounds himself with with courtiers and people who will attend to him, and then incurs incurs a coup, that is, people revolt against him. Rather, he's a king that has an everlasting dominion. And so Daniel sees this vision of a great transition taking place in the throne room. The Ancient of Days is there. He's 
he's awesome and terrible. He's holy. He's, he's beyond human experience or whatever you could stand if you were in the midst of, of the throne. And here at this throne, a human being walks in and he is able to sit on the throne. This is amazing. And so Daniel sees this and John the Revelator then shows us that this took place. Christ ascends into the heavens to receive a kingdom on our behalf. Daniel then shows, not only has this son of man, whoever that is, uh, this son of man receives a kingdom, but also this son of man receives a kingdom for a reason, not just so that he would have it. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him concerning the truth of all this. Now, what's going on is that Daniel is encountering this vision. He's having a dream. He's having a vision that's given to him by the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of the dream and vision, Daniel has a little bit of agency here. And he sees all this stuff take place, and it's perplexing. And the reason it's perplexing is because Daniel has just understood this is the eternal throne. And here a human being has just come in and taken a seat on it. And Daniel can't understand this. It's, that's why he says, I was anxious, I was afraid, I was terrified. Because the implications, if, if this person, whoever, whatever human it is, if he should have any taint of sin in him, then this throne will be, you know, tyranny. This will be a dystopian future. And so this isn't tyranny, this isn't a dystopian future. Daniel inquires... I think probably he's speaking to an angel at this point because Ezekiel calls the cherub burning ones and Daniel says, I turned to ask one who was there. I think Daniel at this point in the the vision is talking to an angel and he's asking him a question and the angel then says something. Keep that detail in mind because that's going to be very important in a second. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him concerning the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And then verse 18, but the saints of the Most High, this is the interpretation. There's not quotes around it because, uh, you know, Hebrew doesn't have quote marks. Um, But here's the interpretation that the angel is giving. Why is this human ascendant and seating on a throne, it's so that those who he represents would receive this kingdom as well. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. This is amazing. Jesus Christ ascends to the throne, receives a kingdom on behalf of us so that we would have security, that we would have the ability to walk and, and make progress in the Christian faith, not on our own, but rather because he sits on a throne. And so this whole picture of what Daniel sees, ancient of days, someone comes up like a son of man, he's given a kingdom, Daniel then turns and talks to an angel, that angel then uh, explains that this kingdom is given to him for the people, that, it, that is a prophecy in the past or in the future, and John the Revelator here shows us in the future. Christ receives this kingdom in order that the saints would receive a kingdom, and this is exactly what John the Revelator sees after the ascension of Christ. He sees the exact same scene unfold, and the one who is the Son of Man is identified as the Lamb of God. John's, uh, John the Baptist, not John the Revelator, John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus Christ in his first public appearance, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so John the Revelator sees this Lamb of God in Revelation 5. We're going to read Revelation 5, 1, I think through 10. Then I saw 
in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, uh, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now this scroll, I understand to be uh, the, the deed not only to the universe, but also the plan of God, the redemptive judgments that God will release on the earth in order to vindicate the church and also lead history to its intended purposes so that all nations and peoples would serve Jesus Christ. Verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. So the you can understand this as kind of an eternal call that this angel is making. Who is worthy to take the scroll? And the, the proof of this is that the search in verse 3 is totalizing. It says, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So no one is worthy to take this scroll. And without someone taking the scroll, there will be no uh, wielding of authority to bring history to its intended end. And that's why in verse four, John says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is saying that this, he understands this scroll and it's unleashing to be very, very important. And that is done, uh, that, that scroll is opened so that people, uh, so that na- uh, nations would come and peoples would come and judgments would be unleashed so that, that God would, could, would have glory through Jesus Christ. And John is wanting that. That's why he weeps loudly. He's not weeping loudly because he got emotional at that point or that the scene was too beautiful. It was tragic. If no one's found worthy to unleash the seals of the scroll, then God's redemptive plan will not be unleashed upon the earth his redemptive judgments. John sees the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, was crucified. And after he was raised, he appears to the disciples and he shows them what? His hands, his side. A lamb who was slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, don't let that fool you. That sounds weird. It's, uh, don't let that trip you up. Which are the seven spirits of God. That just means that the perfection of, of the Holy Spirit has been given to this lamb. And verse seven, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Think about that. A human being who's the lamb of God, who's been crucified, a lamb as if slain, walks up to the ancient of days, and takes the scroll. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from where? Some of the nations? No. Every tribe and tongue I like that translation, tribe and tongue. It's, it's a little more poetic than tribe and language. Tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. That's the exact fulfillment of Daniel 7. Ancient of days, son of man comes, sits down on the throne. It's described that he does this so that they would have a kingdom. John, in John, uh, or, sorry, Revelation 5, he says he sees the, the one on the throne, an angel calls to all Who's worthy to take the, the scroll? No one. And then 
John sees the lamb who comes up and takes the scroll. And then the song of heaven changes from worthy is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty to worthy is the lamb who was slain. And this transition in the song is very important because it's saying that there's been a fulfillment that's been, been taking place. And here the saints are receiving a kingdom. This is why Jesus ascends to the throne to reign on the behalf of the saints. Not so that you will be able to reign, although Jesus does promise that to him who overcomes the world, I will grant to sit down on the throne of my father with me, which is a glorious and mighty promise. If you're ever tempted by anything, just remember that to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit down on the throne of my father with me. That's a mighty promise. But Jesus does, uh, Jesus's ascension is not just unto that we would also be with him, but that he would wield the scroll and bring history to its pointed end. Christ reigns on our behalf and is on the throne of heaven so that we may be with him. And this with him is, is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Christ ascends and by the spirit, we have ascended with him to live in newness of life in his kingdom. And this is where we're ending. The final verse that we're going to look at is Paul's explanation of the gospel in Ephesians 2. And this is why earlier I said that you must begin to place the ascension of Jesus Christ in the exact same category as his birth, ministry, life, death, resurrection. It must be, it must be a part of your memory. It must be a part of the way that you understand the gospel because Paul, as he writes the gospel, brings us, he, he explains it in these terms as we have been uh, ascended with him. Paul describing the gospel in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Before you were righteous, God made you alive with Christ. Remember, we said that Christ experiences things so that we would be able to experience those. Christ is resurrected so that you would be resurrected from dead, from the death of sin. And, and here, Paul describes that as while you were still dead in your sins, God rose you up. You didn't choose him. He chose you. Verse 6, and raised us up with him. This raising from the dead is different than the raising into heaven. Believers who are dead in their trespasses and sins, uh, before the, they're, they're not believers at that point, they're, they're raised up with Christ. And then Paul describes another raising. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, or coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is what Paul is describing. Paul is saying not only has Christ defeated death, and, and therefore we celebrate his victory. But also, God has made you alive with Christ. That is, the same spirit which rose Jesus from the dead also now lives in you. And not only that, when Christ ascended, he took us with him. That is, Christ ascends to the throne of God as a representative of you and I, and by the Holy Spirit, we are seated there. I like to say that the only people who can be in two places at once are Christians, because that's what Paul says. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that is how you are to live. You are to live from the recognition that Jesus is on the throne and that by the Holy Spirit, you are with him. And that is where life flows. In, in the great prayer that Jesus taught us, the, the, the prayer that's commonly known as uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy 
rule be done, will be done, on earth as where? It's in heaven. And so God is inviting us into a lifestyle in which we walk out the Christian faith, we go on mission, and the great summary statement of all of our intended activities, all of our work that we attempt to do in bringing the gospel to the utmost parts of the earth is to be summed up as the atmosphere of heaven, the realm of heaven being transformed to the earth, that the earth would begin to look like the atmosphere of heaven. That's why we must understand that Christ ascends to the throne to wield history, to wield authority over time, and also that we would be with him there. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day in which we remember your ascension. Lord, we ask that you would give us a right understanding of these things. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a holy dissatisfaction with our understanding and our the time that we spend meditating on these realities which you have done for us. God, I pray that you would begin to convince us of the rightness of Jesus's lordship, not only over the throne of the universe, but also of our hearts. And God, I also ask that you would give us a revelation of our call, that, that you have called us to go into all the world, and also, Lord, that we are to go with authority and power. I pray, Lord, that as we approach Pentecost next week, that you would remind us of this time and, uh, time and again uh, this week, that we would, we would ask you to, to prepare our hearts as we uh, remember the, the initial sending of your spirit, that you would come once again like a mighty rushing wind, that you would begin to burn in our hearts with a holy fire that, that burns away every other desire. Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision of you seated on the throne and that we would rightly understand you continuing to work through your saints. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.